Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206-451-4220. GreatNorthernElectric.com Serving our Bainbridge and Kitsap neighbors with solutions for anything electrical in your home. 206-842-3620. This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance, we help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206-842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. Are you a service member thinking about buying or selling your home? Whether you're active duty, a veteran, or a family member, you need a real estate professional who understands the unique challenges of the military. A Navy veteran, certified military relocation professional, prior Blue Angel, and CEO of the Repoint Real Estate Group at Keller Williams Realty Puget Sound, Scott Lever specializes in helping military families relocate to and from the Kitsap Peninsula. Call him today at 206-486-4891 or visit online at repoint.com. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. What's good, Podcastville? You found the bystander. Today's event, it was presented to you by Town Hall Seattle. It took place at the Riveter. And today's speaker is Blair Amani. She is an author, activist, and founder and executive director of Equality for Her, a nonprofit educational platform for women and non-binary people. Welcome, Blair Amani. Okay. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Welcome to The Riveter. Uh, my name is Michael. Uh, I am the Associate Director of New Membership here. Um, can I see a show of hands? Who in here is a member of The Riveter or has been here before? 
Boom, 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 boom. Nice. Okay, welcome back. Um, for those of you who don't know, we are a female-forward co-working space. We are built by women for everybody. Um, we're here to change the way that the world does business. We opened about 18 months ago, um, and now we have five locations. We have three in Seattle and two in Los Angeles. Um, we offer everything from private offices to part-time memberships, hourly drop-ins. And if you don't need a desk to work at, we have a community membership that gives you access to events just like this one. So nice. Um, if you have any questions about the Riveter or anything, I will be here the whole time. Um, after the event, I'll be up front. You can come find me and ask me questions. Before I go, though, I have a request. Can you take your phones out? It's a little counterintuitive. Phones out. I can. Nope, nope you're not. Do it. I'm watching. <laughs> Tal's got it. I like it. Um, open up Instagram. Little plug here. And follow us at The Riveter Co. You can do it later if you remember. If your memory is good enough, you can do it. The Riveter Co. Um, we have a lot of like cheeky memes that you'll like. Um, but also you learn about the events and the programming um, and the activism that we're doing. Um, yeah, again, if you have any questions, come find me afterwards. But uh, yeah, I'm going to turn it over to Candace here. Thank you for coming. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for being here tonight. Um, on behalf of Town Hall and our uh, partner bookseller, Elliot Bay, in the back, I want to welcome you. Um, tonight's event is part of our arts and culture series, uh, Town Halls, um, and it is sponsored by the Wincote Foundation Northwest, Kevin Foundation, and the True Brown Foundation. Uh, the arts and culture series, in particular, is uh, supported by the National Endowment for the Arts, Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, the Arts Fund, City Arts, For Culture, and KUOW. And our work with uh, authors is supported by the Amazon Literary Fellowship Partnership. Um, so Blair and Melissa are going to speak, Marissa are going to speak for about 30 minutes or so, uh, and then they'll take your questions. There's a question mic right over here, um, and we are recording this evening, so if you don't mind using that mic, that would be great. Um, uh, Blair's not going to be signing afterwards. Um, she has pre-signed all the copies of the books um, that are in the back. She does have a flight later on this evening, so we're, uh, we got to get out on time. Um, before I turn things over, I just want to acknowledge that we are at the Riveter and not in Town Hall. Um, the space is being renovated, as you probably know. Um, we have just uh, reached a $25 million renovation fund, um, so it's a big one. Yeah. Uh, hoping to reopen in March, um, crossing our fingers for that. Um, but before we reopen, we still have a bunch of events like this all throughout Seattle. Um, pick up our calendar on the way out uh, at the check-in table um, through uh, all through the rest of this month and December and a couple in the beginning of next year. Um, so check that out. So finally, I just want to uh, uh, thank any members that are in the audience um, Members of Town Hall are the reason why we can keep um, events like this at $5, um, so thank you for your support. So, um, on to tonight's event. Um, Blair Amani is a black, queer, American, Muslim activist. She's the founder and executive director of Equality for Her, a nonprofit educational platform for feminine identifying individuals. As a political journalist and commentator, she has appeared on Fox News and MSNBC, and has guest lectured at Yale and Harvard universities. She has written for the Huffington Post and Vice, and has been featured in Nylon, Teen Vogue, Salon, Broadly, Vice, This American Life, The 405, Public Radio International, and Bustle. Um, joining her this evening is Marissa Janae Johnson. Uh, she is a Seattle-based activist, educator, and philanthropist. 
She uses her background as an organizer to help support black activists on the ground and is one of the driving forces of change in the fabric of our society when it comes to social justice, equality, and uplifting and advancing the black community. Um, she is also a full-time uh, agitator, lifetime lover of black people, and the founder of the Phoenix, uh, Phoenix Fighter, which I should mention they have a table in the back. Go check them out before you leave as well. Um, so t the topic of tonight's event is Blair's book, Modern Herstory. Um, it, it's, the, it's a great book. Um, you should check it out. Um, Elliot Bay is going to be selling throughout the night, so I'm going to turn it over. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here in Seattle. I had planned better. I had a red eye all booked, so I would be able to be here for at least an hour afterward. However, that flight isn't departing until Saturday, and I have to be um, in New York to, you know, Saturday. So I um, had to frantically reschedule my flight, which means I won't be able to meet all of you, but uh, hopefully we'll have a very fruitful discussion, and thank goodness for social media. That's how we connected. Yep. Um, if you have any you know, lingering questions, you want to get in touch, feel free to tweet me, um, call me, beat me. If you want to reach me, shout out to Kim Possible, um, my alter ego. Um, no, just kidding. That would be exciting. Um, but yeah, if you want to get in touch, I'm very easy to get in touch with. Um, and you know, Marissa, I wanted you to talk a little bit more about the Phoenix Fighter before we get started to talking about the book yeah so um i don't i don't know if any of you guys know me here but yes a full-time agitator if you google me that is a nice way of putting it um but i'm really all about pushing people forward and the phoenix fighter is a digital education platform primarily for white folks um which is about how do you actually do allyship because what we found is that um, when we talk about race and do political education uh, there's a lot of throwing facts at people, but what do you do with those facts, right? You know that police brutality is an issue. Okay, what do you do in your neighborhood? So that's what we do with people. We not only do the political education so you get the facts, you know what ma mass incarceration is, you understand how the Me Too movement can be intersectional. This month we're talking about um, voter suppression. You learn all those things, but then we take it to the next step and we say, how can you actually effectively act on those things in your community? And then we also use um, the some of the profits that we get from Phoenix Fighter to fund black activists directly, and this is work that I've done before that's actually featured in the book, my previous company, Safety Pin Box, where we gave out over $200,000 in 2017 directly to black activists. So I'm not new to this, but um, that's what we do. We're about um, sustaining and educating people for the long term, and that's what I'm really excited about. That's exciting. And, you know, one adage on... Uh black Twitter that I often see is, I'm not new to this, but you might be new to me. And I think that is, um, you know, definitely resonant for a lot of folks in this book. Um, an interesting thing about Safety Pin Box and about the type of work that you're doing is it was some of the, the most, it was one of the most controversial elements of this already very controversial book. Um, I went to a bookstore in my childhood home and I was like, you know, incognito. I was like, hey, do you have that book, Modern History? And she was like, oh, that controversial one? Of course not. And I was like, oh, my heart. <laughs> um, so it's being received as controversial but one of the reasons it was so controversial particularly for the chapter um, that you're discussed in which is chapter 7 the revolution will be funded um, is just the concept of having a revolution that will have some sort of a financial basis this mm -hmm. idea of compensating people um, who have you know, traditionally, just like we were talking about last evening, been perceived as martyrs. Um, yeah. This idea that we can't um, be successful and make a change in the world. I want to know how you're disrupting that. 
Yeah, I mean, so the the context is that I entered into activism with the death of Mike Brown. I'd never been to a protest, never done anything before that. Um, and, you know, that first Black Friday that we had to shut down a Westlake Mall, that was like my third day <laughs> ever, ever protesting or being engaged in activism. Um, and I really quickly was put on a national stage when I did even more controversial work. But what I found um, and what I've actually written on for Pacific Standard Magazine is that we have all of these people working in the community, all of these activists, particularly during the height of the Black Lives Matter movement before the era of 45. We have all of these activists working on the ground and we live in a culture that will rush in on you when there's crisis happening. They'll shove a camera in your face. They want you to stand up. They want you to fight. And then they leave and the cameras are gone. And most of the activists that you see on TV can't pay their rent. Right. Um, shockingly enough, you or you won't be surprised by this. Um, companies might not want to hire you if you're politically active. Understatement. You understatement. You might lose your job, but it's not even that. There's the mental health, you know, effects. And so, what we saw was this huge high and if rate I could of just, burnout. Can I just pause yeah. here? Yeah. So, um, so you had totally checked me last night to make sure I was having muscle spasms in my yeah. chest on the left side of my chest, and I was getting numbness in my hand. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm 25 and I'm having a heart attack. And so I had to go to urgent care. And the first thing I message, uh, she, you know, Marissa's checking in. I'm like, girl, are you okay? And I'm like, we'll be there tomorrow. It's no problem. She's like, I'm not asking if the event's still happening. I'm asking if you're okay. Mm. Um, but just like a glimpse into what it's like, you know, after being an activist, you know. I was arrested in 2016 at a Black Lives Matter protest in response to Alton Sterling being killed. And it was so difficult for me to even get on the subway, mm -hmm. not only because of being in a crowd and that reminding me, but because I would hear people talking about the case that I was directly involved in and I'd hear that at work. Um, mm -hmm. And luckily I had a very supportive boss, but you know, in my last job, I didn't have that support. Mm -hmm. It was like, why aren't you on time? And it was like, well, I have this first, I get out and I'm on time and then I'm anxious because I'm a visible Muslim woman. And a lot of people just don't have that patience um, for your mental health and it's frustrating. So now I'm a freelancer, um, but that burnout, you know, uh, our capitalist society does not reward people taking care of themselves. Right. And and definitely if you've ever been in sorry to uh in any activist spaces or whatever this this spirit of martyrdom is really is really kind of celebrated and so at the time before we started our last business before the election of 45 um I had done all of this work and found myself with like dealing with like severe PTSD from the actions I had done. Like I've gotten so many, I've gotten literally thousands of death threats. <laughs> like there's, yeah. Um, and saw all my friends experiencing this and also experiencing crisis of homelessness and um, health, significant health problems and even um, death by suicide amongst lots of activists. And then what we also found at the same time is if you look historically uh, at who's been at the forefront of black liberation movements, not been, who's been um, on who's in the pictures been uplifted, or TV, but who's been bleeding. Yeah, it's been, shocker, black women. And some of the most famous historical black women that you know who have done black liberation work, when they died, they were destitute. Fannie Lou who are still living. You know, like Fannie Lou Hamer, who's mentioned in the book, but sorry yeah. to just jump in. Um, 
Um, Miss Major, who's yes. one, you know, one of the icons of Stonewall. She's still raising She's funding still right living. now. There's no retirement fund for activists. Right. And so you can actually support her right now if you go to Miss Major's fund. She has like a daily care fund where if you're like, wow, I'm a queer person in the world. I benefit from the activism you've done. I'm going to pay my dues to this person. Exactly. But yeah, back to Fannie Lou Hamer. And, and yeah, and so these, this, these historical women's like Rosa Parks only survived at the end of her life off of the grace of friends, like giving handouts where, you know, uh, Martin Luther King's family was always fine. You know, Malcolm X family was taken care of. Um, and so we, you know, I kind of saw this ahead of me and was like, yo, this is for the birds. Like, I cannot be killing myself and my body and have no way to take care of me and my family. And what you see, um, you guys have probably seen this with midterms, is organizations and nonprofits get majority of the money, right? Because what happens is, say you see a protest, you see the protest in Baltimore or whatever, you're like, oh, I feel so terrible. What most white folks do, or folks who aren't connected to the community, is you go into your computer and you Google Black Lives Matter, and the first organization you find, you go and you give them their mo- that money, and a lot of times that money may never actually get back to the, the work that you think that you're supporting, um, because it goes to organizations first, and it's there's not enough support for individuals and activists who may not be connected to a large nonprofit or entity, and so that's how we disrupted with Safety Pin Box, was we were like, hey okay, Trump just got elected and all these white folks are asking us what we can do. Let's tell them what to do, but you're going to pay us because you should be paying us for our services. You mean pay people for the labor they are providing? You're going to pay us, but then we're going to do something else very radical. We're going to go and redistribute some of that money, a lot of that money, back to our own communities. Um, And in 2017 alone, like I said, we were able to give out over $200,000 not to organizations, to individual black women in their communities, not to people who had blue check marks for their Twitter handles Drag or who me. were known. For, <laughs> I know. I I like to say incognito on Twitter, so I don't have one So because I, I never, but, you know, but we were able to find individual people and they were able to use that money from everything from rent to starting their own their own businesses, to uh, continuing to fund the work that they do in community, to taking care of their children, we were able to make an impact that other that other places weren't necessarily making that impact, and so we we're able to disrupt. And like you said, it was very controversial when we put the idea out there that we're going to educate white people, we're going to make money, and we're going to give money to other black people, black women in particular. We got a lot of hate, a lot of pushback. We're saying that we were profiting off of white guilt. Um, which that's the Catholic Church has been doing that for like, years. The ACLU sends you an email after Charlotte. I used to be like, Christian. I can it. make those jokes. I know, and I'm still Christian. That's accurate. <laughs> um, but you know, like, there's you already your email inboxes have already been inundated, right? With organizations this week talking about the midterms are happening. The Chicken Little, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, give us money, right? Like, nonprofits are already doing that all of the time, and we were asking to be paid for our labor, and people also thought it was so radical that we were going to give back to individual people. Well, how will you know how they're spending that money? We don't care. It's not my business. We don't care. What are you going to do? Nah, I just need to uh, social media, do a quick check, make sure that you're a black woman. Here you go. Um, Because they're so... so, 
you know, there's a difference between funding revolutions and funding revolutionaries and the work that you think is important and then doing charity work. Mm. And a lot of what people are engaging in is in charity work where you give money because you want to receive a certain kind of feeling, whether you know it or not. Um, you know, being Christian, I see a lot of this when we see like missions work, right? They want to go on tours so you can go and see people who are who are less fortunate and oh now I feel better about giving the money because I have this emotional response and what we really think is required the work that I've done what we really think is required to liberate everyone is to yes move dollars but the most empowering thing that you can do is say people have their own agency to know what's best for their community and the best way to spend money and to spend resources in their community to move themselves forward and so that was the that was the most radical thing that we did and I'm I'm really proud of that work oh I'm proud of it too yes um and so that actually reminds me of um this other interesting thing that I was noticing in the book as um I've been saying it a bunch but I think it's important to acknowledge um the path it took you to get somewhere you know like what most um, some folks see is that, okay, Blair has a book, boom. But we had 17 rejections. We had people who didn't want to publish a book that had the title, that had the word non-binary in the title, um, that had Missy Elliott being put on the same, you know, pedestal or platform as Oprah because we have to qualify black women's contributions to society and, you know, involve respectability. They're both queens. We can have many queens, you know, um, and non-binary monarchs. But something that was interesting was most of the white people in the book appear in this chapter about the revolution um, will be funded because that tends to be the, the community that has white you know privilege um, and that access to capital. But one interesting um, uh, element of that is um, people like um, uh, Ibtihaj Muhammad, who you may know as the first hijab-wearing fencer in the Olympics. She's absolutely amazing. And I'm actually, I'm just going to, let me do my model thing really quick. I'm wearing one of her outfits. Um, so this is one of her gowns. It has like, it's very modest. It's great. I have to be on a plane a ton. It's very comfortable. Very chic. Wash and wear. Love it. Um, <laughs> but she's brilliant because what she does is she has it created by women, for women, right? And in a multitude in a multitude of sizes, shapes. Um, and this thing that was so beautiful to me was this communal aspect, which is what I want to get to. Um, when she does book signings or when people are clamoring to meet her at ISNA, which is the Islamic Society of North America conference, it's like a bunch of Muslims get together. It's happening. Don't freak out. Hey. It's very halal. Um, <laughs> I said that and they're like, Muslims are meeting? And it was like, yeah, y'all have Rotary Club? Anyway, um, <laughs> I want to be a comedian. Might be the, the safest place so in bad. America right now. I know. Um, internally. But so, yeah, so for isn't that when she people are coming and clamoring to meet her um, because we you know as black women we tend to become known for these viral moments you know she's seen you know the snapshot here the snapshot there but there's a whole story and so the way that she was um, leveraging that whole story was okay you're gonna meet me you're gonna take your pictures with me but you're gonna do it at my booth and you're going to shop at my booth as you engage with my family and it was so dope because you see her mom Miss Denise Muhammad and her sisters all together you know selling these clothes making these clothes making this business work and so I want to talk about the communal aspect of black women's labor and um, making the, the, active, the, the activist movement funded uh, and how it's, you know, very collaborative. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I mean, that was the part of the work they did with Safety Pin Box, but trying to, like, diffuse that centralized power has been a thing that I've done for a long time. So if any of you recognize my face, it's from yelling at Bernie Sanders when he came to uh, Seattle in 2015. Everyone's like, oh! 
Uh, I know I had purple braids then and now I have blue hair. It's magic. Um, Black girl magic. Yes, but that was a very controversial moment. And uh, I, I distinctly remember that in that moment, we, we got contacted by pr- pretty much any news outlet, TV, radio, whatever you could think, nationally and the major ones internationally. And everybody wanted to hear from us because they said, um, oh, they were calling us, what did they say? They said I was funded by Sarah Palin because of a joke on my Facebook. They said <laughs> we were funded by Soros and Hillary Clinton. Can I, can I pause really quick about Soros? So funny, fun fact about this. As I was getting, people were like, Blair, you're a real activist. You're not one of these Soros-funded activists. I was actually living off of a grant from the... Um, Foundation, right? The Open Society Foundation. Like, uh, a lot of and I was like, <laughs> but I'm actually, I'm the George Soros funded pro. This is me. I'm her. Rent's gotta get, we've gotta Rent's get gotta paid. get paid. Oh. Anyway, continue. No, no worries. All I was saying is, <laughs> was that, um, they were, they were wanting us to come out and sort of defend our personal reputations because that's what it became about in the moment. And we made a very distinctive choice to not do any interviews. Um, I think I did one with Tamron Hall, who's dope, like two days in. And then a week later, I did one with an indie, uh, black indie company down in Berkeley. And we distinctly, like, told all these entities, whereas my ego could have been like, oh, I'm going to be on all the, you know, let me, especially when people are maligning your reputation, I'm going to go defend myself. I'm going to go tell, you know, my side of the story or whatever. And we made a very specific choice to, to limit the media that we were doing because we knew if we ignore you, and you, the question is, why did they do this? Why did they do this? You're going to have to go find somebody else to answer that question. And so what it forced um, news outlets and media outlets across the country to do was to go and talk to other Black Lives Matter activists in their locale, which in another, which was kind of shady because now these people got to explain <laughs> why we're up here being wild. <laughs> explain her actions. Why are you doing but, this? But... What it meant was you were able to, we were able to decentralize the messaging where all of those different people were able to give a perspective and give different perspectives um, and were able to promote the work that they were doing themselves. And so it's, it has to be very strategic, like you said, because what the media will do and what a lot of these entities will do is they'll just find a face that they know or a name that they know. Or that they like. Or that they like. Light skin. Mm-hmm. That's a thing. You know, and then they'll clamor onto you. You're the person, right? You're the figure. You're the whatever. And I think there's a responsibility for folks that have platforms to figure out, okay, I'm getting all of this attention or whatever. How do I figure out a way to disseminate that? Because there are so many people doing work (laughs) in the community that A, needs to be funded, and that B, really needs to be talked about, um, even if they don't have a huge platform. Absolutely. Um, And that's a big part of this book as well is um, I was trying to figure out now these are people who the people who I featured in the book, you know, you alongside 69 other women and non-binary folks, people who have affected my life. But as I was doing this, I'm learning more about other people and I'm seeing how these work, the work is connected. Um, And then my publisher was like, girl, you have a page limit. And so I couldn't um, include as many folks as I'd like to. But in the back of Modern History, there's a glossary that talks about terms, events, and phrases, um, tells you about the Black Panther Party, what blackface is, um, what gender non-conforming. (laughs) 
Like, and Kelly needs Maybe this book. Um, here, let's just read that. Okay. Blackface, a racist form of theatrical makeup, including literal black paint used by non-black or light-skinned persons to represent caricatures of black people. You know, just like explaining what things are, contextualizing it, and making it more accessible. But in addition to this, there's a uh, glossary of people who um, are living and who have passed, as well as organizations. So these are like, y'all aren't going to be able to read it, but just so you get a feel for, it's in the back of the book. Um, on page 180, because we need to take this conversation into a 180. Sorry, I'm very cheesy. Um, I'm a, I have dad jokes, like it's a, it's a disease. But um, essentially wanting to redistribute this, this work, you know, like maybe I didn't work directly with um, the organization Athlete Ally, but I want folks to know that there are organizations working with athletes, helping folks come out in a safe and constructive environment. They're also working with sports arenas to make sure that homophobia is not tolerated in any wrestling arena, any, you know, field, like any basketball court. And so letting folks know that this work is being done. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also why, you know, myself being a queer Muslim, I've been trying to decentralize myself as like, no, I'm not the queer Muslim. Right. There's, there's of There us. can only be one. Because they pick the one time. and then there, there can only be one. I actually called it the Highlander Syndrome, where organizations look at you and they're like, there can only be one. And that's my impression there. But um, I'm from L.A., so like the acting is just kind of dispersed into me. <laughs> um, you know how it is. Right. And so... It's just this idea that there can only be one. And I see it happen a lot with people like Mari Copany, Little Miss Flint. You have um, her who is being pitted against other people. She's 11 years old. She's a little girl from Flint, Michigan, who, you know, identified an issue in her community and wrote a letter to President Obama saying, why is, you know, why do I live in America and I can't plan my slip inside because I'll get a horrible rash or yeah. I'll get lead poisoning from drinking water from my faucet. And then... Um, I see it so often because I work directly with her mother where it'll be the black girl of the day um, and they'll interchangeably, you know, so people will come up to Marley Dias and they'll be like, oh, you're so brave for writing to President Obama about your clean water issue. And she's like, no, I'm the one that talked about books. So like, I, I, to, to jump, how many of you guys know Ijeoma Oluo? You've heard basically all of you. You don't even need to raise your hands. All you guys know who she is. Uh, she makes a joke all the time that people can't get light-skinned light women in Seattle together because apparently... You need a hijab. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> I got a story about that, but that's for another time. But apparently when our Bernie Sanders action happened, she had all these people like confronting her online and well, being like, right. I can't believe you yelled at Bernie Sanders. And we didn't know each other at the time. And she was like, I am not her. And... But I support what she did. And, like, that's how we met was her reaching out and be like, hey, there's a lot of people who think I'm you. I'm not you. But I think what you did was really dope. Um, and so we, all, we always kind of, like, joke. And a lot of, there, it still happens, like, especially when we were both writing for the same platform at one point in time. People would, like, hit us up and be like, oh, my God, I love that article that you wrote on blah, blah. It was awkward. It was awkward because they'd be like, hey, Gioma, like, you put it so pointedly on this. And she'd be like wrong light-skinned woman in Seattle that was but it's <laughs> funny too because it happens with you know just like insight into what it's like amongst you know different communities and groups um what you'll notice it, you'll see like a lot of like hijabi and muslim bloggers mm. and people are always like oh you're the one who doesn't always wear the hat like you know I always got it halfway off my head um because that's what's comfortable for me mm. but it's really interesting to see how if I do my my hijab a certain a different style and I'm at a public event they'll be like oh my gosh Amani and I'm like we're different people Amani's the founder of Muslim Girl she's a dear friend uh, <laughs> but we're different people and 
she's also featured in Modern History for her amazing work mm-hmm. with um, Muslim Girl. Uh, she grew up in, you know, post 9-11 mm-hmm. um, America and was being bullied and always saw her story being told from the mouth of another person and wanted those stories to come from, the, their, you know, people's own mouths. Um, so let's, before we move into questions, because we're right on time, I have a speech and debate internal clock that, uh, shout out to high school. Hey. <laughs> uh, Except for not, because public education is terrible. Right. <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> but I want to talk about what it means to tell our own stories while we're still, you know, allowing um, these platforms to be redistributed, um, making sure that it's decentralized. How do we still tell our own stories? <laughs> Sorry. Um, who, how do we tell our own stories? You know, this is, this is something that I've, I've learned and really struggled with over the past few years. Cause like I said, when I, when I started doing activist work, it was so controversial. And the work that I've chosen to do specifically has always like, I, if I see my name on Twitter and people are really mad, I'm like, Oh, this is happening again. It's cool. Um, and I think you know, people think that visibility is like what you want, um, but visibility isn't always a good thing because sometimes visibility is because people love you and you're doing great things, but when people are mad at you or they don't understand what you're doing or they don't agree with what you're doing, visibility can be really, really scary, especially in a country full of white supremacists. And so I think when I started doing uh, activist work and I received all this hate, it burnt me out really fast where I, you know, like after the Bernie action, I kind of like went in a hole for like a year um, and then started writing just before we launched Safety Pin Box, and it was hard. It was hard to get the strength to tell to tell your own story um, when you're sort of inundated with all of the the hate that you just get online in general. Um, and I I thought that if I I think I thought that if I stepped back, that people would just leave me alone. And yet, even this week, as Bernie Sanders said something stupid about race, oh, my you. mentions <laughs> have been dragging me. You know, it just you can't get away from it. And so what I've personally had to learn um is to to start to find my voice even in the midst of like however people feel about me which will be surprising because everybody thinks I'm a really confident person based on the work that I've done but to figure out a way to to still continue to put my platform out there knowing that most people will not will either not receive it not want it 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 will still get distorted because you know if you're if you're trying to control too it's hard because you're if you're trying to control too much in this media landscape you can drive yourself kind of like out of control because it doesn't matter what I learned this really early on it really doesn't matter what you say in large part people will they'll 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 turn it to make it it, like a story Um, so you have to be strategic in that, but for me and like for you, it's like creating our own platforms, which is a double-edged sword. Like, okay, I'm going to have my own website. I'm going to, that's why I started writing articles for other platforms. I'm like, okay, this is a way for me to get my word out there. And that actually putting my story out there backfired when I went on Fox news. Cause Girl, I, I, I can t- relate. I too went on Fox news. I was like one of the first people from BLM to go on there and they were so happy because they're like, nobody will come on here because everybody's scared that they're, we're going to twist their words. But I grew up with tea party parents. So I'm like, this is great. I know how to link what y'all are talking about over here to my liberal politics. And so people were like, Oh, are you not even liberal? Sorry, radical. Cause I'm not a liberal, but, um, they were like, people were like, Oh, are you scared to go on there? Cause they're going to twist. They're going to try to paint you as a radical. And I was like, this is perfect because I'm a radical. So <laughs> it was great. They came to Seattle. They filmed with me. We did like two hours of interviews. And I'm like, this is before the election. I'm talking about how like 
Democrats and Republicans, like they're trying to screw both of them. They're friends. Like they're friends. They don't. They're screwing all of us over. Like they don't care. Like none of them care about us. So I'm like doing all this. I'm like it's the Hunger Games. I'm like making all those connections, and I'm like, oh man, this is gonna be this is gonna be so great. Other things where that people might have shied from if they didn't if they wanted if they ascribed more to respectability politics than I do. So then the interview comes out, and I was so disappointed because Fox cut out all of my radical stuff. And they took like the two most mundane things. I think one of them was I said that the phrase all lives matter is a racial slur. And the other one was that I said that white people had to give something up to end white supremacy. And so they only kept the most mundane stuff. And I was pissed because I wanted my radical politics, libertarian, like the best crossover event ever, right? Like, (laughs) Like what do socialists and libertarians have in common? Like is there any way that I can like I don't know, I had a working class fantasy at that time. So they put the most mundane stuff, and then I still got tons, and then Brett Bart picked it up, and I got tons of death threats. And people would be like, me, I, me and my parents, we like searched on Facebook one time my name, and it would be like people being like, how dare she say that all lives matter is a racial slur? And then they'd call me the N-word in the same status, and then would be like, she needs to go get a job and go back to Africa and take care of her kids while she's on welfare. I was like, you know what? Thank you for showing me the error of my ways. You are totally not racist. I love finding those <laughs> random comments. So I, too, went on Fox News. I came out on Tucker Carlson. I went on Tucker Carlson tonight to Ooh. talk about safe spaces. And then I ended up coming out as a queer Muslim woman on Tucker Carlson um, on national television in 2017, um, which is why I'm now the token queer Muslim, even though it's not just me. Um, and I, re- I refute that token. But it was interesting because this one, like, really sweet lady, like, you know, gray hair, looked like she'd make you cookies or whatever. It was in my D- in my DMs on Facebook. And it's like, you, this, so-and-so, you know. And I was like, ma'am, what would Jesus think? And she was like, you are right. I'm so sorry. She sent me a Bible verse. We bonded. Um <laughs> Because people really don't expect you to respond. But now we want you to respond. Um, so we're going to wrap up our conversation. And I hope that you all have some questions. We have a good 23 minutes. And then I'm going to wipe my fa- my makeup off and then go to the airport um, in that order. So, yeah, thank you so much for having us. And there's a mic over here. Please cue up. Don't be shy, y'all. Everybody just wanted to say all lives matter, and then I ruined it. So. <laughs> is it less intimidating if we have somebody go around with the mic? This is crazy. This really is a woman-centered space, because there's no white men running to the mic to give five <laughs> minutes of their own opinion about what we said, only to fake like they have a question at the end. This is my, no, I'm serious. This is the first event I've ever done where that hasn't, what is, white men who are in the room? What, have you guys just been trained well enough? I don't, I'm not even being funny. I'm just, I'm floored. This is a first. Girl, you're being funny and floored. (laughs) Okay, we're gonna have somebody run. If you will raise your hand decorously, we will pass the mic to you. Yay, we have a question in the back. 
I just <clears throat> thought I would get it rolling. Um, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciated your conversation and insights. I'm new to Seattle in the last year, and I was just wondering what you feel is an underappreciated or um, not very well-known aspect of, of race relations in Seattle. I got I'm not from here. Yeah. Nor have I lived. I've been here for maybe 48 hours in my whole life. Little known fact, or maybe uh, people who have in this house, we believe signs in their yard are the most likely to gentrify you out of your neighborhood. And they're also the most likely to call the police on you. Um, sorry, y'all. Uh, <laughs> um, one of the things that uh, was very controversial about the action with Bernie was that I used the term white, su uh, white supremacist liberals. And people are like, whoa, that's impossible. If people are liberals, they can't be white supremacists. Explain Boston. <laughs> exactly. Um, and what we, what we see is that in these cities that are quote-unquote liberal or that are run by Democrats, we have the same, like, we have horrible racial disparities. And so even before I ever did activism, the first time I learned this was, I don't know if you guys remember, it was years back, but the Race Project came here, and it was cool. You kind of walk through, and it gives you all the statistics about health disparities and stuff in Seattle. And if you look at Seattle, you can literally draw lines about where the white people live and where the brown people live. And then in those sections, you can figure out um, what housing is like for people, if how likely they are to have diabetes. Um, you can life look at expectancy. life expectancy. You can look at the schools. And so, you know, even though we're a city that's run by liberals or Democrats, um, and we're one of the w wealthiest cities in the United States, we have the same, if not worse, racial disparities in as anywhere else in the country but it's actually harder to get at the root of it because every time you try to talk about the issue people just say no we're nice i'm i'm on your side you're like yeah but you're killing me no black lives matter like yeah so that's part of the reason why the work that i've done i've done has been really pointed people are like oh marissa that cut i'm like yeah that cut and you might hate me and think that i'm a real bitch but a year later, if you come back and you're like, yo, I actually had to think about that. It, it kind of takes biting language to really get through the liberal veneer, because there's a lot of it to actually get, get to the action. So that's the big thing that I would say from Seattle is you can't, you, saying Black Lives Matter, having a sign in your yard can't be enough. So that's why I always ask for people for numbers, right? What are, what are you giving and where are you showing up? I need some tangibles. I need some receipts. And so I think the biggest thing that I could tell you about Seattle is figuring out how to push through the veneer of the nice white liberal and, and get down to what is the reality for black and brown people in Seattle because it's terrible and people are getting pushed out of their neighborhoods. And our police is terrible. So, yeah, you can look up that, but yeah. No, that's really powerful. And I think it, like... Looking at so many people in the last, I think, couple of years when people like it, it's frustrating because every week there's a new new low that America has reached where people are suddenly so appalled. We are not this. And it's like, um, did you know that slavery happened here? Um, and I feel constantly like, but I'm a historian, too. So I'm always like, well, in this year we did the same shit. So we've always been this. I mean, in Seattle, if you this. Seattle's really rough for me because you look at the, the police logo. Is, I'm unfamiliar. Listen, here's a drag. Is, is literally, well, because we are on stolen land, mm -hmm. right? And what the city of Seattle decided was instead of acknowledging that we're on, Seattle, on 
stolen land, we're going to take an image of Chief Self and we're going to make it our logo for everything. So if you look at the police of logo, the police? it's an indigenous. Yes, it's an, in, it's an indigenous man. And then do you know what county that we're in right now? It's called King County, which somebody ha- it wasn't it wasn't originally named after Martin Luther King. But we had a great idea. The liberals were like, you know what we should do? We should retroactively make this about Martin Luther King. So if you go in King County Court, if the police who bring you in are going to have an indigenous man on their arm, and then the same court that screamed us down when we were trying to stop from getting a children's prison built you know, in, in Seattle, which has been going on, that fight, if you know about it, it's been going on for several years now. If you look up, it's Martin Luther King Jr.'s silhouette in the same court that is like disproportionately sending black and brown folks to jail. So, you know, yeah, they love their images here. It made me think of um, I was just in Berlin and there was you know, there's actually a big decolonization. Sorry, this is turning into a whole other part of the panel. We have time for more questions. So um, but I was frustrated because I went to Berlin and I basically figured out that the organization that brought us there had essentially imported their black activists. So they didn't have to listen to their black activists Ooh, that were there. Um, which happens frequently, even domestically. Yes. And so um, that was my my feedback at the end of the conversation. Like, what was your takeaway? And I was like, that you should stop importing your black people when you have them here. Um, and I don't think I'll be getting invited back, but that's okay. Sometimes things need to be Did said. Did the check clear? Huh? <laughs> Girl, I love you. Um, yes. So, um, no, but it was interesting because we were doing this, um, there's this, Essentially, there's this area called African Square, Afrikanerstrasse, which is African Street. And we were on that street for less than three minutes when somebody called us Shiza Afrikaans, which means shit Africans. And we were like, on our street, sir? Um, and there's this big frustration there, very similar to what's happening with taking down NOLA, taking down monuments to white supremacy. And that's still happening in Germany. And what happened in Berlin was there was a street named after a man who was a horrible, like, fascist, um, but not a fa- not a Nazi fascist. He was, you know, a fascist prior to that. And so all fascists matter. I know. Yeah. <laughs> all fascists do matter, and they all suck. Um, and so, uh, what they did in response, the city was like, "Well, it would be so expensive for us to pay for a new street sign and to do all of that, you know, stuff with the the post office." So they said that it was after they, you know, say it was, um, you know, Allen Street. They were like, "No, not that racist Allen. This Allen." <laughs> and so, they did it in Berlin too. Anyway, um, yes, question. Yes, okay. So um, I would like to know what are the similarities between uh, the, the difficult times you have as an African-American activist and also Muslim activist. And my second question is, I am Muslim myself, and I happen to see that perhaps a Muslim community are more sensitive towards the mistake that we make. And I wanted to see what is your advice to get over this sensitivity. Yeah. Um, well, let me start by saying that there's a lot of different groups, I think, right now in the United States that have been targeted by whether it's white supremacy, fascism, policing, surveillance, including the Muslim community. And so what ends up happening, and this is you know true of any group that has been colonized or harassed or policed, there's an inward turn. And once, uh, it, it, this is like a longer conversation, but like once, um, 
you know, the patriarchy is disrupted, then violence turns inward. And that can be really harmful toward the community inside. You see this um, during the, prior to the partition of India and Pakistan and Bangladesh. Um, you're seeing this with, um, you know, the Middle East presently after occupation. Um, you're seeing this um, all across um, parts of Africa. Um, you're seeing this here in the United States domestic violence rates here like people always like to point to honor killings in the muslim community but it's like okay so what are we calling it when um the biggest threat to a woman's life is her partner you know um that's within heterosexual and you know same same gender relationships and so um i think that it all is very much rooted in fighting white supremacy colonization and patriarchy um which is a bigger thing right but i think it's all this idea of realizing that we cling to hegemonics we cling to this idea of sameness when our identity is challenged and then we rush to try to find an identity that fits us when it truly doesn't um and then we start making up things like you know women can't drive um shout out to saudi and um but also shout out to Manal Al-Sharif, who's featured in the book as well for, you know, going against that ban. Um, as far as my, the, the differences of being perceived as a black activist versus a Muslim activist, it was very stark for me actually because, um, as somebody who essentially has white skin privilege, I'm very fair skinned. I can be perceived as a lot of different races. I call myself a raw shark test for bigots because if I'm in Texas, I'm Latino and, if I'm in New York, I'm air. Like, it really depends on what headdress I'm wearing. It's wild. Um, and so, um, not, not to say that to be what was me, but to really understand that it has so much less to do with who I am as a person and it's everything to do with that person's own baggage and own hatred and own bias, which has been really healing for me. Um, but before I was, before I started bailing, before I converted to Islam and I was just viewed as, you know, this archetypal, like, oh, she's light skinned. She has curly hair. Angela Davis, you know, like, it's very much, people weren't comparing me to Angela Davis, but it's this idea of, oh, I have um, a script that she can fit, where this is, this her challenging America in this way is okay, um, because it fits this historical narrative. And, well, this misinterpreted historical narrative. And so um, it was like, oh, she's challenging America. That's dope. Like, you know, that fits into this box of black activism that I can be comfortable with. Um, and as soon as I converted to Islam, started wearing hijab, oh, she hates America, leave. And I felt like my ability to talk about governance, my ability to talk about policy was stripped away in a lot of ways. Um, but then it was another interesting thing because I was no longer perceived as a loud black woman. I was perceived as a Muslim woman defying the odds and speaking up. And so that was an interesting way that bigotry came in clutch because I was like, okay, um, I'm going to speak up in this meeting. You're so brave, Blair, where before it was like, that's out of turn. Um, but it really sometimes comes down to how people see me and all that to say is I've really taken stock of my privilege because, you know, if I was a dark-skinned black black Muslim woman, I wouldn't be able to pass between being an Arab woman and then being a black woman because, you know, dark skinned, you know, Muslim women are visible all day, every day as those identities simultaneously. So I really try to lift up those stories, um, which is why I also wanted to feature people like Dr. Suad Kabir, who does amazing work talking about black Muslim identity. And I would really recommend um, her uh, website, Sapelo Square, S-A-P-E-L-O Square or Sapelo Square. Um, which talks about the um, 
the different intersections of blackness, not only American blackness, but Caribbean blackness, African blackness. Um, and so that would be my recommendation was not to take my story as this like universal archetype of what it is like, um, because it is very much informed by privilege, but to look um, to other Muslim women as well. I hope that was helpful. Thanks. Somebody said that was great. Appreciate that. <laughs> Could you like two more questions? So um, I'm curious, you've talked a little bit about what you do with Safety Pinbox and the importance of capital in enabling activists and enabling movements, um, both kind of the, the importance of that capital and importance of how it's distributed. Um, I'm curious as to your opinion on what can't capital do. Um, I think I see a lot of white folks just saying, you know, I'll just continue to put money, time, whatever it is towards it. Um, That'll, that'll be enough one day. But what, what can't capital do in either enabling these individuals or enabling these movements? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, so what can't cap, man, capital, money can do a lot. Let's, let's just be clear. Um, but I think framing, cause for, let's be clear. All white folks need to come up off the coin because I'm not going to give any passes for white folks sitting, continue to sit on, resources because I'm just not going to do that but um what I would encourage people to do is think about uh think about money in terms of resources so there's tons of resources what, what we need is resources right and so one of the things that we've seen in black communities and marginalized communities that are starved for resources and don't have resources is that people are able to do some amazing work in the community with like no money, right? They're like feeding the community. They're getting people around. They're doing work programs and they don't have like tons of grant funding, right? They're not sitting on any trust funds. They don't have access to capital in the same way. And so when you're thinking about how to support movements, yes, keep funding. Cause guess what? Money does make things easier. It allows you to buy things. It allows you to take care of people. But also think about, um, like our communities have done, what are other resources that you can provide? Cause they're not just in terms of money. So like one of the things I do with the Phoenix fighter, um, is like we have this sample task called the allyship audit. And what we do is we have people walk through their entire life, their budget, their job, who they know, where they live and access and think about what what resources do they have power over and where are they stewarding those resources? Because a lot of times people say, oh, I want to be an ally, I want to help out or whatever, and they haven't taken inventory of what they have to bring to the table. And so that might be why people, the money is important, why people might run to money first is because they haven't maybe taken inventory of other things they have. So you might not even have money. If you have money, you should give money. But... Um, you might not even have money, right? But you might have certain, the biggest thing that white people have other than money is white people have connections because white people know other white people with connections and with money that, that our communities don't have. Like I learned this the hard way because I grew up in a very poor community in Louisiana and was very much fed the meritocracy myth where it's like, if you just work hard, you're going to get scholarships. To, you can like work your way out of poverty. And then when I went to college, I was like, oh, like, all these white kids, like, when you're get, trying to get a job out of college, like, uh, most people are getting jobs because their parents know somebody, right? Or because they had access to things I could never have coming from two, like, poor, working-class, black, you know, coming from a black and white parent. So 
one of the things I encourage people to do is think about other resources that you have, right? If we're talking about, um, one of the things that we were talking about was like ice raids, right? People are like, what are we going to do if ice comes into our community? I want to be an ally. Well, if you haven't thought about the home that you live in and you haven't talked with your partner, people who live there about what you would do if there was an ice raid in your, com- in, in your neighborhood, would you harbor people? Would you shelter people? <laughs> what would you do if there was a police incident on your on your block? So having people really go through in their life everywhere where they have power and really take an assessment of, of what they're willing to give and what they're willing to shift and where their money is already going is really, really important because the thing that happens is people look at these issues and they feel completely overwhelmed because this shit is really overwhelming, right? And then so people just opt out. This, what can I do about mass incarceration? It's so huge, I can't do anything, so I just opt out. And so what we try to help people do is like really break it down to like, what can you tangibly do even if you don't have money? You can write letters to prisoners, right? Like you can help make sure that uh, children of incarcerated people get, get gifts for Christmas. So I encourage people to really think about like the multitude of resources that they can give, and that might even just be like connections, who you know, advocating for black, even just making sure that the black women in your office make the same amount as you, it can go a long way. Um, so thinking about resources in terms of all the different power that you have, and then exercising those um, wherever you can to disrupt the status quo. Sorry, that was kind of long. No, no, that was good. Yes. And it reminded me of just a quick story, like a quick anecdote. Um, when I was going to school at LSU, there was a man who was my mentor. You were in Louisiana? Yeah, I went to school oh, in Baton Rouge. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay. Go Tigers. I, was, I, have, it's yeah. very, I have a very fraught um, relationship. It was very racist. I was like, I went to Louisiana, like, racism's over. I'm going to have a great experience. Girl, I was like, oh, my God. Louisiana got that old-time event. I'm from Pasadena, California, where everybody's friends. Um, just kidding. It was racist there, no, too. No, that's plantation slave. <laughs> that's old plantation segregated cemetery yes. still. No, but on that point, um, there was a man there who had the same last name as me and was very well-connected in the city, and he was a former coach at LSU. If you know LSU's history, you'll know probably who it is. Um, and he gave me permission to tell everybody that I was his illegitimate child. And if I got ever in trouble with police, do you know who my dad is? Would get me out every time. And they would call him and he would be, what are you doing? Why are you leaving? Why are you bothering her? And that was, that helped so often. That helped uh, one of my friends was getting pulled over by the police on the way home and getting harassed. I pulled over and I was like, this is my friend. Do you know who my dad is? And it was like so wild because that is not an experience I, I have outside of those, you know, that, that anecdote and that, um, that privilege, which was extended to me in a very interesting way. Um, but that is often how people get out of situations who are white. Um, and so that was a way of extending connections and allowing me to like opt into this familiar relationship, but it was still, um, based on privilege. You know, it's believable that I would have a white father because I am so fair-skinned. Um, but you can get really creative with the way that you extend privilege, whether it's you're having, you know, a social event, you have extra suits to give, you have a connection. If there is that ice raid happening and you know somebody who's the head of that office in your local, in your locale, you know, I just don't think it's the right thing to do, Fred. You're right, Chad. You know? 
Well, that's, I, I think that's really important that you bring that up because that's one of the things that we talk about with Phoenix Fire and that I've talked about in my work is I, that I think white people don't understand is the importance of social pressure, right? And so people are like, what do I do with my gra- grandma when I go to Thanksgiving and she's being racist? I'm like, she's being racist at the table because you guys have created an environment where she knows she can be racist and her bullshit is going to be tolerated. Now, if she, if she thought that she was going to come because there's stuff you don't say around grandma because you know you'd be kicked from the table, right? Why isn't racism that thing for grandma when you get to the table? And so I've literally, you know, we've talked with uh, subscribers and memberships and said, and they're like, what do I do? I'm like, what if you had a rule that your kids don't get to hang out with racists and that includes family? That's what my parents Would your family change the way that they behave, right? And using that social pressure, because guess what? People don't really do the right thing, right? Like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, uh, was very successful in this, right? They were successful in sort of changing the tide around drunk driving, not necessarily by giving people statistics, but by making it so taboo that now if you see your friend about to drive, you're like, dude, dude. Because Mothers Against Drunk Driving, they, they did a really uh, huge PR campaign that was like, look at the mothers. Do you want to, do you want to make mothers sad? Because it was the social pressure and the society pressure. But people but were- But said it would be, look at the black. Right. <laughs> Well, not necessarily, look <laughs> no, the, no. not necessarily look at the blacks, but look at the kids that you're putting this impression but, on. But, th- but really interrogate yourself and ask why, why racism and white supremacy and xenophobia and homophobia and transphobia is okay in your presence. You know, for me, I, I let my, cause I, I, I come from a Christian family and they're conservative Christians and they know there's certain things that I'm not going to have this argument with you every time. But if you're going to come in my house, there's a way that you're going to behave. I, I don't, I don't care what you believe around about queer people or trans people, or whatever. When you're in my presence, there's a way that you're going to engage or we're not going to have a relationship. And so what would your families and your networks look like differently if you're like, Hey, grandma, you know what? You can be racist all you want, girl. Like, do your thing, but you're going to have to do it outside. Because in this house, you know, everybody's got those signs. In this house, we believe. Do you really? Do you really? You know what I mean? And use the children. Because guess what? You know, people are talking about, I wish people would stop doing this. Oh, we just got to wait till the racists die off. They're not dying off. They're having more. Y'all are, like, people are giving birth to new people and raising new races. And that's because you keep them around races, right? And so there is a responsibility, I think, for white folks and white communities to make it socially taboo to be racist. And you're not doing that when you're doing this move like Nancy Pelosi and Bernie are trying to do where you're doing the reach across the aisle. They're not, they're not racist. They're just uncomfortable voting for black people, Right. Like, don't, don't say the civil war was about states rights. Yes, exactly. So put on the, put on the social taboo, put on the pressure. If you really believe in this house, we don't stand for those things. Then that means that somebody participate. They know if they come into your house and they engage in that, they can see the door and people will change their behavior because they want to see their grandkids. Period. (laughs) That's all the time that I have. Marissa, you're, if you want to stick around to answer a couple more questions, up to you. There's also the Phoenix, the Phoenix Fighter. You can, yeah, you can come check us out at the Phoenix Fighter. Yes. And you check me out on Twitter. Follow both of us. Please um, get your copies of Modern History. Yes, get the book. Yes. Go buy it. <laughs> that, spend your resources. Um, but no, I really appreciate you all coming out. Um, this is my first book. I'm working on my second now. I'm never, I never thought I would be an author. Um, I actually struggled reading um, fluently until I was uh, in third grade. 
I didn't have, like, I didn't speak another language. I just had trouble reading English fluently. Um, and so it's wild to me now that I'm an author and I'm able to um, share these stories. And I appreciate you all for sharing in that gift with me. So thank you all so much. And I'm going to go to the airport. The Bystander Podcast would like to thank Town Hall Seattle for presenting Blair Amani and allowing the bystander to record. You can subscribe to Town Hall Seattle Podcasts for hundreds of more arts, science, and civics talks. Check them out at townhallseattle.org. You've been listening to The Bystander. Be kind.